like I said, we're stepping back into Luke today in our ser series, uh, Luke, the Limitless Gospel. Uh, and, and I don't know if you remember, you know, we, we had a bit of a one-week break for Easter, uh, which, which we traditionally do. Um, uh, but, but before that, two weeks ago, um, the narrative in our story reached a point of what I would call a serious tension. Um, I, I imagine for a moment uh, that you were one of the Jews who were following Jesus on his way to Jerusalem. Uh, you're seeing these amazing things happen. He's uh, healing the sick, preaching good news. If, if you believed that Jesus was the Messiah, the Savior of the world, um, you may well have come to the point of assuming that simply for being there, for being a part of the crowd, you're already one of the saved. Uh, that it's really not that hard to get into God's kingdom. Uh, that you are already in, so to speak. But then imagine how you might have felt when a member of the crowd stepped forward and asked Jesus the direct question, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Basically saying, what do I have to do to be in? And as you asked that question, you probably would have had a few standing assumptions about how this was going to pan out. Um, if you don't remember the passage, the, the guy was genuinely morally upstanding. We're talking about last time's passage here. This isn't what we're expounding today, but it's relevant. This morally upstanding man, when Jesus looked at him in the eye and said, uh, have you kept all of these laws? He was able to answer yes from a young age. Uh, notwithstanding that there may have been some pride there, even being able to attempt to say that is pretty big. Not only that, but, but by the common mentality of Jesus' day, this guy's life seemed to confirm that fact, that indeed he was loved by God for his good works. Uh, in modern day Australia, our assumption tends to be that a rich person is a bit suspicious. I don't know if you've run into this. Uh, it's a bit of our um, cool poppy thing we've got going on. That it's that it's in some way that they are inherently maybe dishonest or just, just to be suspected of something we don't know what, we distrust. But for a first century Jew, that's a Jew in the time of Jesus, the opposite was true. If a person seemed to be morally upstanding and was rich, then, then the assumption was that God had blessed them with that wealth because of their goodness, because they had done so well. Uh, to be clear, I'm not saying that that's correct. I'm just saying that that's kind of how it was. Uh, you might remember over in John's gospel. Um, oh, I'm digging something out from later in my sermon here. But uh, over in John's gospel, they, they run into a, a blind man and the disciples ask Jesus, whose sin caused him to be blind? His or his parents? Um, it's not, is that a result of sin? Notice that's, that's the assumption. It's just whose sin caused it. That was the mentality of the day. Now, do you remember what happened with the rich ruler? You know, Jesus called him to sell all he had and to come follow him. And he was exposed. His real God, his money, which he would choose overcoming and following the true God any day, was exposed and he went away, sad. He failed to enter in. Imagine how that would have shattered your world your understanding of where you stood in relation to God when this blessed moral man was turned away from the gates of the kingdom. No wonder the disciples cried out, then who can be saved? 
basically the bystanders and the disciples, they're, they're asking gobsmacked if he can't be saved. If a man as upstanding and blessed as him can't be saved, what hope do we have? What does hope does anyone have? What does that mean for us? And today we get the startling answer to that question in the form of these two interactions with two very different men. And if the rich ruler was the one that everyone expected to be in, then these guys are the opposite. These are the guys that everyone expects to be out. You know, first up, we get, we get a man who sits on the side of the road, blind and begging. Uh, look at the bare facts here, because we're going to see that there are some things that this man and the next man have in common. First off, he's someone you wouldn't expect to be saved on the surface. Now, it's, it's worth noting, he, he hasn't just come to Jesus. He's not one of the crowds following Jesus. He's just there. He just happens to be a bystander. This is his patch where he begs. Uh, he's, he's, he's the equivalent probably to a modern-day disabled homeless person. And I think most of us would say, well, John, there's no reason why I would expect that person to be less likely to be saved than anyone else. But, but how many of those people have you talked to about Jesus exactly? Like, I think, I think we, we, we would probably say that we don't have that assumption, but I think functionally often we do. That he's the sort of person that a lot of people probably avoid uh, because they might bother you for money. Because you're not sure about, you know, where's that money going? Is this, is this the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do? You know, do, do I want to go and buy my coffee with that instead sort of thing? So this guy, in one way, he's not the person you'd expect to be saved. He's, he's a poor, homeless, blind beggar. Secondly, much more clearly than that, he's someone the world of his day actively rejected from salvation. Given the choice, people would have denied him access to Jesus. We see that very clearly. Uh, imagine, if you will, how this guy was viewed in a society where wealth was seen as God's blessing, as God's confirmation that you were doing the right thing. Wealth and health were seen as that. You know, like I mentioned, over in John 9, there's a blind man. They assume it's sin that has caused his blindness. And... Uh, it's not biblical teaching that that's the truth, but that was the assumption of the day. It was a dominant thinking of the day. So understand, in the eyes of most of his contemporaries, this blind man on the side of the road would have been almost as far from being likely to be saved as anyone could be. If, if this event happened immediately after the rich ruler, then the question they might well have asked now was, or, you know, <coughs> imagine, imagine, you know, they're still there with the rich ruler and this guy happens to be on the scene. And they say, then who can be saved? Not him, that's for sure. But what about the rest of us? Like that, that would have been maybe how that had gone. And that mentality is confirmed because when he calls out to Jesus for mercy, what do the people do? They, yeah, they tell him to belt up. They rebuke him is the wording. They tell him off. And then comes this third thing that we see in the pattern here that his hope is not in him it's not in who he is but in who Jesus is did you see what he called out he doesn't just yell Jesus give me my sight back please he cries out Jesus 
son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, that, those, those are a little bit foreign words maybe, but um, it's a messianic title. This guy knew that God had promised that the Christ, the Messiah, the saviour of the world, would come to his people and that he would be descended from King David in the Old Testament. And this guy is the guy who puts it together and he realises Jesus is the son of David. There's more here than a man who wants his sight back. There's a man who sees the saviour of the world even without seeing him. Isn't that remarkable? And critically, critically, what happens when the whole world expects that Jesus will reject him or maybe just keep walking and not even look at him, pretend he doesn't hear the beggar, when he knows he doesn't deserve anything from Jesus and he's just begging for mercy, Jesus welcomes him with open arms. The guy asks Jesus to heal him, and he does. And Jesus says, recover your sight. There it is again. It's it's Jesus, the object of his faith, who saves him, not himself. Um, Your your faith, there it is, your faith has made you well. And the wording there in the the original language um, can just as easily be translated as your faith has saved you. And obviously there is an element of the healing there probably more. The man is saved, and he clearly is saved, because what happens next is he goes on and follows Jesus. Do you see the contrast here? The rich man who thought that he was bringing everything it took to be saved to Jesus had the offer, sell all you have and come follow me, but refused to come follow but his, uh, bli- this blind beggar on the side of the road who knows he has nothing to offer, hears Jesus coming and God brings real faith into his heart and he follows. Let's just pause and say there's a real lesson for us to take from this blind man. Not many of us here are blind and begging. In fact, I, I don't, unless anyone's been seriously hiding something from me. Um, but... Was that a hand up? No, you were taking glasses off. Um, We often can struggle to imagine that God would want someone as useless as me. I don't know if you have those days. You do the opposite days as well where you're like, you know, I got it all together. But we have the days where we just feel useless, where we feel like we have nothing to offer Jesus. We, we, We have so little to bring to him. But this passage, it speaks this warm yet confronting truth to us. It's not a you and who you are to follow Jesus to be a disciple growing in Jesus to be one who is used by him in his kingdom has nothing to do whether with whether you're any good or any help whether any of your body functions whether whether you've got a great track record it's about Jesus and who he is if your faith is in Jesus you don't need influence you don't need power you don't need money or physical prowess or special abilities or to be a great jack of all trades or even to have use of the parts of your body you you can be poor and blind and Jesus calls you don't trust in you and in who you are trust in me and who I am and come follow me trust in Jesus that is not me uh (laughs) heaven forbid 
There, there, there is a, a place for you by the side of Jesus. Doesn't that, doesn't that warmly rebuke the, the pride that says, I need to bring something to you? Ah, it's all about him. And, and we're going to dig a bit deeper into that little hole because next we meet a guy named Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus is probably one of the most misunderstood people in the Bible, if you ask me. Um, raise your hand. You've heard of Zacchaeus? Like, uh, maybe don't raise your hand. That shames anyone who hasn't. But um, there's no hand there. He's my dad, though. I'm allowed to shame him. Um, <laughs> I know. Um, yeah, if you grew up in churches uh, and you read any Christian picture books as a kid, um, you were probably subjected to the idea of Zacchaeus as this kind of yay high, insecure, lonely man who, who, who deserves your pity, but who no one took pity on. Poor old Zacchaeus. He's usually, usually plump. I don't know if you've noticed that. I, that's not in the Bible. Um, he's, he's often presented a bit like the ugly duckling, I think. The biblical ugly, ugly duckling. And sure, he's done some bad things, but you know, it's probably because he's had such a hard life. But, but that's not remotely close to the Zacchaeus we get in the Bible. It's, 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 it's so far from accurate. What we get about Zacchaeus, it's not a lot. We get that, like the blind man, he's someone you wouldn't have expected to be saved if you knew him. But for completely different reasons, right? Luke tells us that he is a chief tax collector. Do you remember the tax collectors? Uh, they were locals to their area who had, for monetary gain, chosen to work for the Roman occupying forces in their region, in Judea. They were seen as traitors to God, traitors to their nation. And worse still, they got rich off of it by skimming more money than was required from their countrymen. That's why you took the job. There was cash in it. Zacchaeus is not just a tax collector, notice. Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector. So if you want a modern equivalent to Zacchaeus, I don't think we've got a really clear one, uh, think, but think maybe of the modern, hardened Wall Street executive who makes millions at the expense of others, but worse. Think sunglasses, black suit, black tie, Rolex watch, two thugs by his side. That's Zacchaeus. Think the kind of guy who has money for a Rolls Royce and a yacht and wouldn't have dropped a cent in the blind beggar's cup. That's Zacchaeus before he meets Jesus. And like the beggar, he is someone the world of his day actively rejected. Given the choice, people would have denied him access to Jesus. Let alone saving him. You know, we read here that people grumbled because Jesus ate with him. Now, eating with someone was a very significant act of acceptance. But still... You know, imagine, imagine their, their looks if Jesus says, you've been saved and become a son of God and come into the kingdom of God, ahead of the rich ruler, by the way. It's kind of understandable that they grumble, right? Uh, imagine what you might think. You know, maybe Jesus is a sellout. Maybe Jesus has just seen the money bags and decided to go along. At the least, maybe Jesus is ignorant of who this guy is, that that said something about Jesus. 
but that would be to misread events entirely. Because what's really happened here is that Zacchaeus is responding to an innate knowledge that everything he's gone after to fulfill him isn't enough. It's meaningless. And he sees Jesus coming. He hears about a man who can reconcile you to God, save you from your sins, and he realizes that that's the one thing that he needs and the one thing that he can't buy. And do you see why Zacchaeus is so keen to see Jesus? Climb up the, you know, that he's willing to climb up a tree, suit and tie and all. Like picture the Wall Street guy here. It's helpful in in imagining how this would have felt at the time. Just to catch a glimpse of Jesus. He's like, bodyguard, stay here. And like runs for the sycamore tree. Short guy, jump. Like, like (laughs) it's crazy. And Luke tells us why. He says that in verse 19, verse 2, he says, he was seeking to see who Jesus was. He wanted to know if it was true, if Jesus really was who everyone said. And if he was, then Zacchaeus wanted to know Jesus more. So his hope's not in who he is, do you see? His hope is in who Jesus is. And again, just like the blind beggar, Jesus welcomes him with open arms. Jesus comes to this rich, hardened man and he sees how empty he is on the inside and how much he wants to be saved and how much faith he has that Jesus can do it and he does it he saves him and Zacchaeus is changed for having been saved by Jesus how much of a contrast is there there was a bit of a contrast between the blind beggar and the rich ruler but what about Zacchaeus and the rich ruler right the two rich men One, everyone would have expected to be saved, and the other, no one would have expected to be saved. He probably didn't expect himself to be saved. But in the end, the only real difference between them is that Zacchaeus wants Jesus. He wants peace with God. He wants to be saved more than anything else. Jesus has faith, uh, Zacchaeus has faith in Jesus more than he has faith in his money. So, So Jesus doesn't even tell him to give his money away. He just starts doing it. Did you see that? He's so grateful for what he's gained in Jesus that the money just isn't that important anymore. There's so much that we can learn from the story of Zacchaeus. Uh, Seriously, we could could have spent the the whole sermon digging there and got about halfway. But uh, let let me give you a couple of key things here. First, we know this, but we need reminding of it all the time. No one, but no one is beyond the reach of God. It can be really easy to look around and to think the, the world is full of people who have it together and need nothing. That's how Zacchaeus would have looked, by the way. People who don't need God, or at least have no sense that they need God. We see people who seem like they have everything they want and like their sin doesn't bother them at all now over in romans chapter one um paul says that what can be known about god is plain to everyone but that people suppress the truth that's the paraphrase of romans 1 18 to 19 deep down that means everyone in the hardest of hearts even has a knowledge 
an innate understanding, no matter how suppressed it may be, that there is a God and I need him. That the other things I go after to fulfill me are not enough. You know, never mistake a front of fulfillment that someone puts up for the real thing. There's no lasting peace or fulfillment outside of Jesus. There isn't. If you're a Christian, let this give you confidence when you go to talk to people about Jesus. Everyone, but everyone, everyone needs him. And everyone has a sense, even if it's suppressed, that that's true. That there's something missing. That there is a God and that they need him. second thing that I want to take from this is that there's a, a dangerous kind of thinking that we can fall into and that's that I need to sort myself out before I come to Jesus. That is a, that is a dangerous way of approaching Jesus. It presents in kind of one of two ways actually. Uh, either we think Jesus would never want someone as rotten as me, as broken as me. If he knew the things I had done, if he knew what I'm like when no one is looking, if he knew how I think about other people or act toward other people or use the people in my life or use the money or the time or the things in my life, then he would reject me. And so we avoid Jesus. We don't come to him because we're not ready. We need to be ready before we come. You know, wouldn't it have been really easy for Zacchaeus to think that, if anyone thinks that? If only I could sort myself out, become an honest man, give back the money, start treating people well, then I would be ready to come to Jesus and be saved. The other option, of course, is that we, we do the ritual, you know, uh, we come to Jesus trusting that I am good enough, that I have got it sorted out. And so we come to Jesus, but with no real sense that we need Jesus. We think that, that what's required is in me, and I've done it. I've sorted it out. You know, obviously, these are the easy traps for a person that might keep them from coming to Jesus in the first place. For someone who has never believed in Jesus, uh, but they might, they might fall into these things. But even if you've been saved for a time, I want to say, it can be easy to fall back into this kind of thinking. You know, I know I've, um, sorry, got my sentence wrong there. It's, it's like thinking, I know I've been falling into sin and failing. If I could just put an end to it, then I would come. Then I would pray to Jesus for grace. Then I would accept that I could be forgiven. Then I would repent. But when the sin, sin's still going on, well, I need to sort myself out before I, before I come to him. I don't know, like that, that's familiar to me. Like, I know that tug of temptation on my heart to say, you know, I need to sort myself out before repentance. It never works that way. It doesn't the story of Zacchaeus and the story of the blind beggar just kind of crush that kind of thinking? Here were two men who would never by worldly standards, be ready to come and be saved by Jesus. And yet they come as they are, and they trust that he is enough to save them 
even if they're broken and small and sinful and rotten. And he saves them. He says to Zacchaeus, today salvation has come to this house. And the giving away of his money is just evidence of that. It's not what saves them. He didn't need to have it all sorted out. He needed to trust that Jesus is enough and receive full, undeserved grace and forgiveness. Now that might seem like a logical place to end here today, uh, except that we've, we've kind of skipped over the two main parts of this passage. Without them, we really don't fully understand what's going on here. You see, we're, we're, at this point, we're left with a tension, probably bigger than the one we started with. The moral, upstanding, rich ruler has been turned away from the kingdom, whereas the broken beggar and the chief sinner have been welcomed in. If justice were done, especially in the case of Zacchaeus, if justice were done on the basis of their actions, if anyone was saved, it would probably be the rich ruler, right? Like, who's, who's tried very hard to follow the rules. You know, Realistically, none of them, but if anyone, him. But actually, our passage today is, is bookended with these two statements of why Jesus came, which tell us why the lost and the broken who hope in Jesus are welcomed in and the, the self-sufficiently moral who hope in themselves are turned away. Right at the beginning of our passage, you heard Barry read this out before, uh, before the blind beggar, in Luke 18, 31 to 34, Jesus said to his disciples, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spit upon, and after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. The purpose of Jesus coming to the world was to be mocked, shamefully treated, spit upon, flogged, killed, and die, and then to rise. Jesus doesn't just say, this is what's going to happen. Understand, he's not fortune-telling here. He's not making a prediction. He says, this is what's going to be accomplished. You see that word in there, accomplished. Everything that is written about the Son of Man will be accomplished, he says. The cross of Jesus, well understood, is not the defeat of Jesus, but the fulfillment of his mission, and indeed the fulfillment of the expectation of the whole of history and of the Bible before it. But why? Why is the cross and the empty tomb so essential why do we come back to them week in and week out here at gospel church and never get tired of the good news that jesus came and died and rose again i mean you might even think me a bit over the top here we are one week out from easter and i'm talking about the cross and the empty tomb expect it next week why must we never move on from here we get the answer and the other book ends at the other end of this passage Luke 19, 10, Jesus says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The broken beggar and the chief sinner, they're welcomed in because of the cross of Jesus, because the cross of Jesus 
He's for lost people. Because he died our death, carried our punishment, and rose to give us new life. Let me encourage you. You you might be running from God. Maybe you're like Zacchaeus, whose sins seemed so heavy. Or maybe you're like the blind beggar who had nothing to bring. But Jesus says, you don't need to bring anything. Come and trust in what I have done to give you life, to save you from sin, to bring you to God. Even if you've trusted in the grace of God before, continue to come and to receive that grace. It's the only way to live once you've stepped into it. Pray with me. God, your grace should never become so so to us. Your, your love, your astounding graciousness towards us should always take our breath away. That you would come and die that you would come and be spat on and flogged and handed over to evil men and beaten and nailed to a cross of wood. But yes, to rise again, having waded through the depths of our death and our sin for us, should never cease to take our breath away. Lord, draw out our hearts. Give us the heart that Zacchaeus had that says, I must know who he is and I must know him more. Give us the heart of the beggar who trusts not in himself but in the son of David, the saviour of the world. Lead us, Lord, to be a people who come in all of our brokenness and all of our insufficiency and trust that you are enough to save us and to carry us onward, even to the day of your return. To the day when we see you face to face again. Give us the faith to believe. We believe. Help us to believe all the more.